Hello, it's Monday, April the 24th, and welcome to Area 45, a Hoover Institution podcast examining the policy avenues available to the 45th President of the United States. I'm Bill Whalen, a Hoover Institution Research Fellow, joining me in studio today to offer his thoughts on where we stand some 167 days after the political earthquake that was the 2016 presidential election, Victor Davis Hanson. Victor is the Hoover Institution's Martin and Illy Anderson Senior Fellow in Residence in Classics and Military History. He's a professor of Classics Emeritus at California State University, Fresno, and a nationally syndicated columnist for Tribune Media Services. You can also benefit from Victor Davis Hanson's wisdom every week, courtesy of the Classicist podcast, which, like Area 45, is produced by the Hoover Institution. Victor, great to see you, and I feel like I only touched the tip of the iceberg of what all you do. Oh, that's okay. Thanks for having me, Bill. My pleasure. So we're going to talk about Donald Trump, but first I want to ask you something I've been itching to ask you for years now. I write two or three times a week columns. I tweet, I text, I try to stay active writing, and it is dwarfed by what you put out every week. So my question is simply this, Victor, how do you stay so consistently productive? Because you are writing multiple times a week, you're working on books, Mm. you're lecturing, you're going around the country giving talks, you're doing media. How do you find the time to do all of this? Well, I don't do what a lot of other people more wisely do. In other words, I really... I have a farm and I come up here, you know, to work, but I don't have any, I don't, I I realize that when I turn 60, I'm 63, that I don't have a social life, so I don't socialize very much. I just stay out on the farm and nobody, and when I see people, they're local people I went to high school with and then I come up here and work, but I've lost, I mean, you pay a price for that and I look back and I think it would have been a little wiser to have a more well-rounded social life, but uh, my wife and I don't go many places and... I just sort of work all the time. My kids kind of kid me about it. I know that I used to go to places like Orange Cove and Tulare and Bakersfield to watch my son, who was a very gifted baseball player, and then he would always be embarrassed because they were always calling up and said, you dropped seven library books through the <laughs> bleachers and we, the, janitor, the groundspeople fall, and Fresno State would get really angry because I would write books at baseball games. So you pay a price for it. And then, of course, quantity is not – the more – quantity and quality are not necessarily not antithetical. <laughs> they One comes at the expense of others. So that was – sometimes I think I write too much. Well, I would disagree. I think you've managed to blend both quantity and quality. Speaking of which, I want to bring up a column you wrote in August of 2016 with the headline, Donald Trump, Postmodern Candidate. Yes. Let me read this passage to you and get your thoughts on where we stand today. You wrote, and I quote, The public is growing tired of two realities, the one they see and hear each day and the official version that has nothing to do with their perceptions. Trump comes along with a ball and chain and throws it right into the elite filtering screen, and the public cheers as the fragile glass explodes. If most politicians are going to deceive, voters apparently prefer raw and uncooked deception rather than the usual seasoned and spiced dishonesty. Will Trump fade in August, implode in September, self-destruct in October, or win in November? No one knows. There are no longer rules to predict how a fed-up public will vote, and there's never been a postmodern candidate like Donald J. Trump. Victor, is Donald Trump not just the first postmodern candidate, but is he now the first postmodern president? I think so. He's, uh, I think the left and many on the right made a big mistake because they used classical terms of defining him, that he was a billionaire, therefore he was an elite, therefore he couldn't be a populist, therefore he couldn't relate with somebody in southern Michigan. And they didn't realize that in this televised culture, people looked at his appearance that was kind of out of whack and his accent. And he's 
He used something that nobody had ever heard before. He said, our miners, our farmers, our soldiers, the first person possessive pronoun. And he just didn't act like a Republican uh, elite. It wasn't, a, you know, they weren't going to say to him like they did to John McCain, you can't remember how many houses you have or Mitt Romney or vulture capitalists. So he he just didn't, he didn't have anything. Well, there was no investment in the political world, nothing to win, nothing to lose for him. And that gave him an enormous sense of liberation. And people who felt that, I guess we'd call it coastalism, that the coastal cultures had not benefited them, globalization, high finance, uh, traditional Republican free market economics, there really is no alternative. But nevertheless, he had an animal cunning to see that there were people that were lost out. And, and in his own weird way as a billionaire, he was a misfit as well. And they said, he's our misfit. And he really connected. Now, we insist upon putting labels on politicians, yes. conservative, liberal, Democrat, Republican, independent, progressive, so forth. What label do you fix to Donald Trump? Traditionalist, I think. And again, people will say, how can he be traditionalist when he has three wives or has had three wives or he uses vulgarity? But the point is that he lives in a world, I think, somewhere between 1970 and 1995 in which things were much simpler and we had sort of absorbed the 60s and incorporated elements, but we hadn't, there wasn't anything quite like Black Lives Matter. The feminist movement was sexual liberation, not sexual Victorianism. And in his way of thinking, he, he wants to get back to that. Mm -hmm. And uh, that was enormously appealing. And then he had an implied message that people who tell you how to eat, how to fill your tank up, where you what you should do, what you should think, never live by the ramifications of their own ideology. So here in California, you know, we want to save the Delta smelt, but we don't want to use Hetch Hetchy water to it. Or we want to have the highest power rates, but we live in a 70-degree year-round climate. So, And that's what people got very angry at, the hypocrisy about it. So he came along and just said, I'm not invested in any of this system. It's kind of a nihilism in a way, and, and people found that refreshing. Now, you're looking at somebody who at all points thought Donald Trump was going to drop off the radar in some yes. way. When he first flirted with the idea of running, I thought, well, this is silly. He's just trying to extort more money out of NBC. And then when he actually jumped into it, I thought, well, the first moment that somebody else takes up the border wall, he'll drop out. Or he'll get tired after a couple of debates, or the good people of Iowa and yes. New Hampshire will kick him to the curb. Or some Republican will come along at a later stage and take him out. Or there'll be a coup at the convention, or the voters eventually punish him in November. Mm -hmm. And like watching a slow-speed car chase in California, Victor, he just kept going, kept down, going. going down the highway. You saw this. People like me did not see it. What did you see that I didn't see? Well, I tried to tune out uh, uh, some certain people. Some of them were my colleagues, some people in my field because uh, I, I was not sure that there were certain things that we don't are not supposed to do. We despise anecdote. We despise crowd size. We despise him going out and talking to people. We, we talk about analytics. Right. And there were little things that I, I picked up. Uh, there was a dinner once with Peter Till was next to me, and somebody had said, why couldn't Trump have a sophisticated data analytical campaign like Hillary? And he just sort of winked and said, Nobody has any idea how sophisticated his analytics are, Trump's, and how backward Hillary. That was just counterintuitive. Mm -hmm. I sort of noted that. And then I had a pump installer once telling me, Hispanic guy, that all he lived for was Donald Trump. 
I was in southern Michigan I, I, for a month at teaching the Hillsdale. I had been there for three presidential elections. I never saw Bush or, or, or Obama stickers. I went out and there were, it was flooded. And I saw a man spraying graffiti on his garage, Make America Great. I, put, I went over to him and I said, is that your garage? You're, 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 he says, you're damn right it's my garage. And he was just, he grabbed me and he just said, sit down, you gotta hear what, and he wanted to talk to somebody. And so I was thinking, you know, this isn't the majority, but if, as I look at these states, um, Michigan, Ohio, Pennsylvania, they could be very influential. Then I also thought that the so-called demographics, the more I started thinking about all the Latinos that were gonna vote uh, for against Trump, Take, just to take one example, not to, to single out Latino vote, they were either in California that was blue or Texas that was red, and they weren't going to change it, maybe Colorado or New Mexico, but they were sort of written off. So I thought, well, this demographic that Obama created, I don't think it's applicable, or I should say I, I don't think it's transferable to a 69-year-old wealthy white millionaire like Hillary Clinton. In other words, it was predicated on uh, getting an enormous amount of uh, non-traditional voters to vote in mass and in block, and then uh, hoping that Republicans like a Romney or a McCain would alienate because of their stature or wealth the working Reagan Democrat. And so, if somebody came along that could appeal to them, and uh, Obama's support was not transferable at the same numbers, which it had to be, mm -hmm. then I thought that Hillary was going to have problems. Now, she won the popular vote, but she did have the electoral problems. And then the final thing was, I kept hearing that when the Weekly Standard and the Wall Street Journal people, or my magazine that I write for, National Review, all these are people on Fox News were anti-Trump or never Trump, that you could not win without that elite establishment. And yet, not only did I think that wasn't true, but I thought that it almost, they were almost People were angry at them, too, because they lumped them in. And so when he got, he, I, I knew he was going to get 90 percent of the Republican establishment, and he did. So I, I saw a pathway there, so I guess what I'm saying. Then I looked at a couple of polls that people, I talked to pollsters, I'd say the IBD poll, the USC poll, the LA Times, they're, they're, they, they have a good record. Mm -hmm. And they were consistently, as you remember, showing him even, and uh, maybe they're their analytics were based on daily tracking, maybe through computer where you didn't have to call and say, I am voting for Donald Trump. Right. So there were things there that I think, it wasn't just me, that a lot of us put, put together that there was something, there was something going on that gave Trump a 50-50 chance. She was also a lousy, she got worse, she was a lousy, uh, Hillary Clinton was not an effective Obama-like candidate. She just wasn't. No, I don't know if you've seen the book that's out now on her yes, campaign. Yes, I've looked uh, at and read parts of it. It's just sort of that worst of political books where it's just a bunch of consultants just feeding up. Consultants who've made the decision that she's not going to run again. There's nothing to be feared about from the Clinton world. They're not going to get another paycheck from her, so they will, without attribution, completely dump on the operation. And I, having been in politics a long time, I find these books both fascinating but kind of just really a sad commentary on, yeah. the, on the profession. It itself. reminded me a little bit of the 68 campaign when Humphrey ran against Nixon, right. and in, he really d didn't have a message because he was embedded with LBJ's pop, pop he, which he kind of supported. Yet, and his, his message was he was tricky dicky. It was anti-Nixon, anti-Nixon, and then there were things going. And and then it was uh, with the Civil Rights Act of '65 has got a new electorate. And, but there were things that were going on with the the dissolving of the so-called Solid South that they didn't pick up on. Because it, and that was what their message was. I'm anti-Trump. I'm anti-Trump. I'm anti-Trump. 
but mm-hmm. never what I'm for. And they just assumed that was going to work, that and money and fumes of Obama, I guess. Exactly. I think one of her problems, Victor, was that she was running, in many ways, as a Republican. There's a Republican model of success in the Reagan area, which is that we tend to choose men in their 60s and 70s, and that's their last campaign and their last hurrah, and they organizationally have a hand up on the field, and the narrative of it's a last go-around, the monetary advantage have, the organizational advantage they have. They win it either just by sheer force or just by duration. Yeah. Romney's a good example of this in 2012. And that's, in many respects, the campaign she ran. And Democrats, historically, Victor, they like younger candidates, yeah. and they like movements, and they like fresh faces, and she had none of that going for her. And she surrounded herself with people that would make these cameo appearances, Barbara yeah. Box or Diane Feinstein here in California, or Stinney Hoyer, or even Bernie Sanders, and you're right, they're all geriatric. And and Trump seemed to, to have fresher faces, I think. Um, it did not hurt Trump to be told every day by a Republican, for the electorate to be told that the Republican establishment didn't like him, because they were, from the Tea Party days, angry at at, at that establishment. It's an irony, by the way, for the state of California, Victor, which probably spends more on the pursuit of youth, be it exercise, diet, cosmetic surgery, than the other 49 states combined. When you look at California's political lineup, we have the oldest senator in the United States Senate, Dianne Feinstein, may or may not run again next year. She'll be 85 if she does. Uh, your very good friend, Jerry Brown, uh, <laughs> will turn 80 next year. He's the nation's oldest governor. Yes. Nancy Pelosi was born in 1940, as was Barbara Boxer. It's a generation of people who were raised in the 60s and 70s mm-hmm. and have been on the scene here for the better part of 40 years. And uh, at one time, I'd always thought, I listened to Barbara Boxer praising diversity, and I said to myself, three of the most powerful women in the United States live 50 miles apart, and they're all multimillionaires or millionaires, and they're white women, Then they live in the Bay Area. Yeah, Some it's, diversity it's in a, a state painful. that's 40% it's a, Latino. It's a little painful to watch at times. Uh, Diane Feinstein was in California a couple of days ago to do a town hall and do mm-hmm. an obligatory check-in, and so they did a photo op of her sitting in and out mm-hmm. eating a hamburger, and I just thought, gee, you guys are really pressing trying to, yeah. trying to connect. So you voted for Donald Trump. Yes, I did. You watched him give his inaugural address, yeah. and then you watched him go to work. And what were your expectations when he actually sat in the Oval Office? Well, this is what I couldn't understand about the Never Trump people, because I think they assumed that his, uh, he, was not going to, he was going to appoint some paleocons and Buchananites, and there was nothing in his record that suggested that he would. So he outsourced basically foreign policy to non-politicians and non-State Department people. and non, He just bypassed the Council on Foreign Relations, the Brookings Institute, and we ended up with three brilliant people in James Mattis and General Kelly and H.R. McMaster and Tillerson had experience. I look at the, uh, you know, Rick Perry or DeVos or Pompeo, and I can't think of a Republican who's made as impressive appointments. I realize yet he, the immigration orders were uh, poorly handled, and then there were, the second one was okay, but there was a judicial. But the basic tenet that Obama previously had seen a problem, and you were going to expand on that, and was sound, and so his defeats didn't bother me because I think they're temporary. Same thing with the health care. But boy, Obama weaponized him when he said pen and phone and executive orders because Trump came into office and with a click of a finger, I mean, there's Keystone, there's Dakota, there's deregulation, um, there's all, and then Jeff Sessions uh, with the immigration. And he, I guess my feeling is he's restored this human concept of deterrence. So we have an 80% drop-off on the border because people feel that the law is going to be enforced. Right. It's not a good deal anymore. 
uh, overseas, we're seeing people recalibrate the United States because they're, uh, they're, they think Trump is unpredictable and could say anything to anyone at any time, which is always valuable in foreign policy. And there's sort of a, an idea that it's a new climate and you don't know what's going to happen, but in times of uncertainty, it's wiser to follow the law and go back to what's t tried and true and not try to push the envelope too much. The Washington Post did a poll over the weekend, released a poll on Trump's first 100 days, which mm -hmm. uh, the first 100 day uh, mark is actually uh, this upcoming Saturday. Yeah. Uh, some interesting numbers, a screaming headline, of course, is the Washington Post, a screaming anti-Trump headline is that Trump has record low approval ratings for a president approaching the 100 day mark. But if you look inside the poll, Victor, I found three very interesting sets of numbers. Yeah. One is that in a head-to-head -head with Hillary Clinton, he finishes ahead 43 to 40 percent. There's a plus or minus of 3 percent, so they could be even. He could be up by 6. But there's apparently no voter regret in terms mm -hmm. of choosing her over him, which just confirms that Hillary just seems to have a kick-me sign on her back. The second number that stands out is they asked Trump supporters, and this poll was pretty fair, it looks like, in terms of their sampling. 46% of the poll was Hillary supporters, 43 Trump, and that mirrors the national election. But they asked that 43% of the poll that voted for Trump, would you vote for him again? What do you think the number was, Victor? Uh, I would say 99%, <laughs> so I don't know, but I, I'm just being facetious. But of people who were Republican, probably 88, and people who said they voted actually for Trump, it would be above 90%. Um, you're, you're a wise man, and given yeah, to your yeah. facetious side, it was 96% would still vote for him, 2% yeah. would not. Yeah, I think people misread when they, they thought they were going to drive a wedge when he hit Syria, and they didn't realize that he's not neocon nation building. He's doing what he said. He's bombing the SHI out of. So he's a Jacksonian in the sense that people do want a muscular response, but they don't want to lecture to people across the world and say, you know right. what, you've you got to adopt our citizens. They don't want to be weak and carry a small stick with Vladimir Putin and then get a loud, uh, keep very loud and lecture him about his human rights problem. And Trump thread that needle brilliantly, and I think the people around him understand that. It's a Jacksonian, don't screw with the United States, don't tread on us, and if we do this enough times, deterrence re reappears and the world's safer. Right. And the third number that caught my attention was the poll asked um, its respondents uh, about sharing values. And 52% of the poll said they do not believe that Donald Trump understands America. But while that sounds lethal for the president, that's actually good news in this regard. While 52% said that Trump doesn't understand America, over 60% said the Republican Party does not understand America. Yes. And over 65, I think it was 67%, said that the Democratic Party does not understand America. Yeah. I think people uh, are, they don't understand America. And, right. that, and I mean that in a complimentary sense. They don't can't figure out what's going on in their country. So... Um, they don't understand that if you, if you or I uh, falsify a document or forge a document or a, adopt a, a different identity, then we're going to get a felony and we'll probably be hot fired from the Hoover Institution. Yet people do it all the time that are illegally here, and yet that's considered just the normal procedure if you're quote-unquote in the shadows. Or they look at certain tax codes and they feel that this person pays at the capital gain rate and I have to pay at this rate. So th there's a feeling that this country somehow got into a habit of creating a system that favors the very wealthy and the very poor, mm -hmm. or the underclass and the overclass, and has, and they, the middle class, lack the romance of the poor. Uh, everybody feels sorry for the poor or particular groups, but they also lack the culture of uh, 
the wealthy. And here comes Trump, and he's obviously, for all his money, he is at home with the middle class value. I talked to a person, just saw him, so I said, what did you eat? He said, we ate In-N-Out burgers, and he gave us Haagen-Dazs. And I said, were you shocked? And he said, yes, we were shocked. I said, we're not supposed to eat that in America anymore for politicians. So he, it's not phony. He feels an infinity with that middle class stratum, culturally, socially, economically. And I think this has worked subtly to his advantage in ways people don't understand. What he's sitting on is, it's, it's a great irony and disconnect of, of Donald Trump, Victor, in that there he is sitting on his incredibly elaborate, fancy, private 757. Yeah. Who, for God's sakes, has their own 757 outside of somebody who owns a, you know, a football team or a billionaire? And he's sitting there doing what? He's eating a, he's eating a Big Mac yes. and Diet Coke. And of course, the media have a fit about eating a Big Mac and question his health and so forth. And most people look at the Big Mac and they think, I like a Big Mac too. Or when he went and ordered a steak, and it turns out that when he orders a steak, he puts ketchup on it. So of course, oh my God, who puts ketchup on the steak? Well, there are probably a lot of people out there who put ketchup on their steak. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. I think there's a lot of people who feel that nobody has listened to them, and then so when they see this invective and anger at Trump, mm -hmm. they really didn't even want him to answer to specific charges the way a traditional Republican like Romney or McCain would have done. Mm -hmm. Instead, he just dismisses the entire premise right. that these people are uh, disinterested. So I guess the public would say, if the media says Obama is a god or makes their leg tingle, why should we believe them if they say Trump's a devil or makes my leg go to sleep? You know what I mean? They have no credibility, and they like a person that just points out at those rallies and say, see that layer up there? They're all fake news. And then we hear this these Edward R. Murrow anguish, and how can he dare say that? But they don't realize that incrementally, insidiously, they've lost their reputation because they were so dis biased and unprofessional, most flagrantly so in the WikiLeaks revelations about the collusion with the Hillary campaign. So I guess he's saying to, the, to all of us that Obama did some pretty outrageous things, but they were malevolent and they were sober, and I'm going to do some pretty outrageous things, but I'm not going to hide it. What you see is what you get, and the media has not been able to digest that. Right. Now, you're giving a talk later today to a Hoover Institution audience, and uh, to appeal to your classicist side, I imagine that a Hoover crowd, if Caesar said that Gaul is divided into three parts, I imagine a Hoover crowd is divided into three parts with Trump in this regard. There are those in the crowd who voted for him. Yes. There are those in the crowd who did not vote for him. And then I imagine there's a middle victor who voted for him because they see him as a means to an end, yes. be it the Supreme Court, be it taxes, be it Obamacare. Talking to that portion of the crowd, because that's the one I'm interested in, yes. Judged on what Trump, based on what Trump has done in his 100 days, based on what you're watching, is he succeeding in being a means to an end? Yeah, I think he is. I think that means to the end even transcends the idea of an agenda of getting Neil Gorsuch or getting a competent person in defense or readdressing some of the problems with charter school. All that they, they approve, and they're kind of mystified that someone that they opposed is going to be a more success, successful vehicle for those issues than somebody they supported. And they're, they're trying to figure that out, I think, a lot of them. that They used to say uh, Trump's the only candidate that could lose to Hillary. They said that in last year about this time. And now I think they all agree that Trump was the only candidate that could have beat Hillary. And now they're going to a new level, and they're saying not only could Romney not have won, but Romney, who had better character, could not have uh, established an agenda that has a chance of being implemented the way that Trump could, maybe because it's he doesn't have... Trump's fire in the belly, or he's not willing to do the things that Trump's sort of a Lee Atwater. You know him better than I do, that figure. Right. 
that we haven't seen on the Republican landscape for a while. So I think, but all that being said, uh, Bill, I do think that if you and I were to walk in this tent right outside the tower um, and we were could ask privately, I would say that the figures of the Hoover overseers are about 90% would vote for Trump again. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. So I'm not going to put you on the spot, Professor Hanson, and ask you to give a grade of Donald Trump. But like all good professors, you can always yeah. offer constructive criticism yeah. to your students. So yeah. as we approach 100-day mark, what is your constructive criticism for the Trump presidency? Where can he improve? And I think I know where you're going to go, and that's yeah. his dealings with the Republican yeah, I, Congress. Yeah, I think the Republican Congress is important. He's got to sit them down and say, look, we're all in this together. I want you guys to get reelected. You tell me what you want to do to get reelected. I'll do it. You tell me what, whether you want a campaign, but we're all, we, we only have a ch one chance. This doesn't happen very often in American politics. So we got this agenda. We can't have a debacle like this healthcare. It's part my fault, part your fault. Let's get it together. He's got to do that. And then he's got to tell his staffers, I don't want you sounding off to the media. I don't want you freelancing. You don't say anything but complimentary about the Congress. He's got to get Paul Ryan and Mitch McConnell to say, you can't freelance against me. We've got to get united. That's the big thing. And then uh, I think the tweeting is really valuable, but I think at times when he gets off into popular culture, makes fun of Arnold Schwarzenegger's disastrous apprentice, then he t people say, people who support him will say, we don't have enough time for that. You know, it's, it's time is of the essence. So I think mostly it's just one of focusing and discipline. And, uh, but otherwise, I don't want to fall into the trap where we all ankle-bite Trump and we miss the larger picture that he came out of nowhere. We've never had a Republican candidate that caused a virtual civil war among the intellectual elite that all were all opposed to him. These, the architecture of the Republican Party was opposed to him. We all said this was the best field we'd ever seen. Uh, Cruz, uh, uh, Walker, Rubio, and we told we were told that he really didn't have as much money as he had. He he got rid of one campaign manager, then another camp, and yet he won. And uh, that requires some degree of cunning and expertise that we as observers don't have. So there's a graveyard full of political commentators who've said, as you pointed out, for the last two years what he was doing wrong without saying what he was doing right. So I, I think that uh, he's changed radically. If you had said, uh, Bill, just a year ago, we're going to elect Donald Trump, and before he even builds the wall, illegal in immigration in the United States is going to decrease by 80%, or the stock market's going to go up, I don't think anybody would have believed us. Yet he's... He believed that, and I think he was, he's, one thing about him is that he does, for someone who can be crass and crude and cruel, he does seem to inspire uh, a sense of loyalty or a sense of shared ambition with people like Jeff Sessions or General Mattis or HR that might, if we could, with the exception of Sessions, it might not have been an earlier supporter, but I think they feel that I'm not going to get a lecture and I'm not, everything is possible again. And that was not true under George W. Bush. It was not true under Obama, certainly. But I think he's basically saying there are no rules anymore and we're going to go back and try things that nobody's even imagined that we would dare try and go to it. And so they drop the mother of all bombs or, or uh, we do the Syrian thing and 
and it's pretty amazing. It really is. Uh, do you find a parallel to him in your studies of the Greeks and the Romans? Well, yeah, there there are these characters, uh, especially in Roman uh, first century A.D. literature, Petronius, Juvenal, and as the the Italian, the old Italian elite grew into the Mediterranean, and it became a market economy, and it got the wealth of the world. You had people from Greece, you had people from Egypt, you had people from Morocco who were not native Italians, they didn't speak Italian very well, and they were much more wealthy than the old landowning classes in Italy because they were into commerce, and there's a novel by Petronius, and they were ridiculed for their taste. Uh, They didn't have good taste in terms of Rome, but they were can-do people. They were the guys that that shipped uh, marble back and forth across the market. They shipped wheat. They knew how to do that stuff, and they were disdained by the elite very, and they were made fun of by this aristocratic literature. But there was this sense of, wow, the world is changing, and Rome is now a Mediterranean culture, and we're getting people with different skill sets that should, would never have qualified under the Italian Republic. And uh, it's dangerous. It's, it, we don't know what's going to happen. But and yet this is so baffling to me, and I can't figure it out, Bill, when a, a guy who can barely speak English says to me, I'm voting for Trump, Victor, very heavily Mexican accent. And he says, you know, he's a businessman. I thought, well, how how stereotype, how trite. And he says, you know, they know what to do. They want to make money. They want to make profits. They have employees. And him working for a pump company knew all this. He goes, like my boss. My boss knows more than the city council, Victor. My boss knows more than the county supervisor. Why wouldn't I vote for my boss over them? And that seems so, uh, you know, basic, but most of us didn't get it. We have only a couple minutes left, but you mentioned before we went on the air that you gave a talk in San Mateo the other day. Yes, I did. uh, Which I suspect is a different world from the one in which that fellow who voted for Donald Trump comes from. How you're you come from uh, you're what a fifth generation California farmer, Victor? Same house. So your roots in California are substantially deeper than my 20 years in this state. You look at this big blue marble that we're sitting in right now, and how do you make sense of what's going on in California right now? Well, I always and, look, and I know that's yeah. an awfully general question. No, I, I understand. I, I think most of it, it's just two different societies. Mm-hmm. In other words, we have a trillion plus dollars that came all over the world and plopped down in Silicon Valley. Right. Lesser extent true with Hollywood. Lesser extent, but still true with Stanford, USC, Berkeley, these great universities. Mm-hmm. And from La Jolla to Point Reyes, 50 miles inland, we've got about 30 million people who feel that their money and influence insulates them from the ramifications of their own ideology. So they set the power rates. They live in 70-degree weather. They don't go live where I do, where Mexican-American people go into Walmart in August because they can't afford to turn on their air conditioning. And they'll sit there all day to get that 65-degree temperature. Or they let water out to um, feed a Delta Smith. 50 million acre feet have gone out this year alone in a so-called wet year. But they would never do that with their own Hetch Hetchy water, and they don't really care the effect it has on farmers. Uh, five million acres are water short. And I could go down the line. Uh, we have the highest basket of taxes, you know, sales, income, gas, and Forbes, I think, rated as 49. Our schools are 46, but we have the best universities in the world. So I think what's happening is that this elite feels that they can enact utopia for this state but they have no idea what life's like in Bakersfield 
or up in the Sierra or down in Mojave or up in Northern California. And it's reaching a critical mass. And the, the big elephant in the room is just two questions, and that is, is it sustainable, these unfunded liabilities, this raising taxes ending up this year with a $2 billion deficit? And second, do they really believe that if you shut down the border and you don't have an influx of very poor people from southern Mexico, but you have the ingredients of an Italian-American experience in California where integration, assimilation, and intermarriage will create the Latino community that is not wedded anymore to being advocates for open borders, but rather asks different questions. Why do we have transgender legislation when we have these high kilowatt rates? Why am I paying $4 a gallon uh, when the legislature is worrying about dogs chasing bobcats? Uh, my daughter goes to, to a particular school. Why is its, it's uh, reading late rate, uh, you know, 41st in the nation? And they're starting to see that this high-tax, high-regulated economy doesn't really help people in Salinas. It doesn't help people in San Jose. It doesn't help people. It's grafted to a wealthy elite that has basically said, vote for us because we're left-wing and, and the right-wing are evil and they're racist and sexist and xenophobes. I think that's wearing off, and if Trump shuts the border, um, you will see the emergence of something like the Italian-American experience in which if I say your name is Giuliani Cuomo, you have no idea how I'm going to vote. And I think that's happening, and that's, that's going to be explosive, but it's, it's 10 years down the line. And what's your sense as to the uh, sanctuary city controversy, Victor? How do you think that's going to be resolved ultimately? Well, I, I think that the problem with sanctuary cities are, are twofold. One is that we've been there in American history. Whether Whatever we want to say, uh, Andrew Jackson solved it in 1826. We solved it with South Carolina <laughs> during the Civil War. Uh, George Wallace tried to nullify federal law in 1962 in the, in the University of Alabama front door. You can't do it. You can't say that federal law doesn't apply. So we can talk all we want. We can get in a Ninth Circuit appellate court to do that. But ultimately, if you have a federal system, you can't do it. And the Supreme Court will eventually find that, and they're going to have to change. And then the second thing is people don't believe that sanctuary cities are based on a concept of, of what we on the conservative side would say federalism in the sense that the state should be able to exercise it. What I mean by that is if you and I walk outside to downtown Palo Alto and say to somebody, do you think Cody, Wyoming can get away with federal gun registration laws? Or do you think people in Provo, Utah can just declare the Endangered Species Act null and void within Provo, Utah? They would say, of course not. And that suggests to all of us that it's not a consistent, systematic, coherent belief, but it's I'm so much smarter, I'm so much uh, better people that I have decided that in my enclave, federal law should not apply. But for all you idiots out there, federal law will have to overrule your own prejudices. And that's not a sustainable idea either. So I think it's going to gradually, I think that whole issue is going to go away because it's not based on a, a real comprehensive ethical premise. It's, it's just self-serving. and No, the CalExit idea is dead for the time being. There was going to be a ballot measure in yeah. 2018 that would have created a referendum in 2019 to vote in secession. Uh, Tim Draper from here in Silicon Valley yeah. has floated the idea of six Californians, and you know your state history better than I do. Uh, people for decades have talked about splitting the state up and down the coast in half. You name the idea, breakaway Jefferson and so forth. Do you actually, do you subscribe to the breakaway theory? Do you think California should be busted up? Only in the sense, uh, I, I understand, and you know better than I as a political 
expert on California. I mean, you have problems with the universities and tuition and ta- and all of that. Thing, but there is two different states, right. much more different than West Virginia and Virginia. And it's basically a longitudinal aspect. Somewhere around the coast ranges, life changes radically. Mm-hmm. Uh, and somewhere on the coast, it doesn't. And the conventional wisdom is we here in the coast have all the universities, the brain power, the knowledge base, the post-industrial skills. We have the banks. We have the defense industries. We have finance. We have investment. We have Silicon Valley, Hollywood. But if we're looking around and, and we see a piece of wood here or, or granite over there or oil or food, that f- is brought into the coast, and right. it's done by the muscular classes. And they actually, the people I talk to, they keep saying, bring it on. They, they have, everybody in the coast despises the interior, but they have no idea what people in the interior feel about the coast. And they would love to go to sort of a Wyoming paradigm. And we'll see, in, unless we have political leaders that reach out, unless we have a viable Republican Party, but uh, unless we have a, a, a governor who's a true Republican, uh, every once in a while, I don't know what will, I don't see that rift healing too soon. But I, I, everybody I talk to in the San Joaquin Valley, when they they laugh about it, but they say, wouldn't it be nice not to have to deal with Berkeley or not or Silicon Valley, and you know, it would be a different world. I mean, we would have UC Merced, they would have Stanford, and we would have uh, um, Bank of Fresno, and they would have uh, Wells Fargo. So, and they would have Apple and Google, and we would have a startup company. But on the other hand. We'd have the food, we'd have the oil, we'd have the timber, we'd have the granite, we'd have everything that they prize. Right, under the Draper plan, we'd be sitting right now in the great state of um, San Francisco, yes. which I don't think people around here would like no. to live under. No. We'd have the highest per capita income, we'd have uh, a wonderful world-class university system of Berkeley and Stanford. Victor, we'd also have no water, no electricity, no, water, no, pl- no. no place to put our prisoners. So all the water comes from the Sierra. And then I'll just leave on an anecdote. I said this to this group that got them a little mad yesterday, uh, Saturday. I went to, for a luncheon in San Francisco Friday. I thought it would be 45 minutes. It was a three-hour drive, no power, and it was utter chaos. The, the stoplights didn't work, and these very sophisticated postmodern people were crowding. I, one woman jumped out of her Porsche, stopped so her husband could cut in front of me, then jump back in the Porsche. It was just barbarism. And then when I drove down to Monterey on Saturday, I was also told, come an hour and a half. And I thought, well, you know, this is California. I'll leave four and a half hours. I got there five minutes late. Two lanes on 101, cross traffic, hasn't changed since we were kids. And so coastal culture is uh, not all what it's said to be. It can't, before you can be postmodern and worried about worrying about a three-inch bait fish in the Delta, you have to be able first to create roads that work, schools that educate, and uh, the Bay Area culture can't do that. Right. I'm sorry you hit San Francisco on the day that the power is out, but on the good news, you were there a day after Weed Day. So <laughs> <laughs> Maybe there's working. a connection. Uh, a final quick question, Victor, and I will let you go. Uh, we're sitting here a year from now, and we're talking about Donald Trump at 100 days plus one year. Just quickly tell me how Victor Davis Hanson would measure success for that administration. Well, I think he's going to have to—I don't think he's going to repeal the Obamacare, but he's going to have to have something like 
what the health system was before Obamacare with a provision that you you can't be turned down with a prior uh, condition and your kids can stay on, and that's what we're going to get back to. And then I think we're going to have to have a radical change in the tax code. I think he'll we, will restore deterrence. But let me just finish by kind of being reductive and saying that if Donald Trump achieves 3% economic growth, I don't think we've seen it since 2006, then it doesn't matter what you and I say. It's sort of like Reagan when everybody said he was a failure and then that Walter Mondale was going to beat him. And then I think in that 12-month period leading up the election, he got 7% economic growth. And everybody was talking about naming National Airport after him. So if he gets this 3% and the tax cuts and the deregulation and the energy development work, and I think they will, then it's going to... I mentioned 68 before. I think it'll be like 72 because the Democrats are sort of doing what they did in 72. They're trying to go back. They misread this, just as they misread Humphrey, that it was Wallace and the bad Humphrey campaign. So they looked at Hillary and they said, it wasn't that she was a bad candidate. It wasn't that she won the popular vote. It was that she was too centrist. So we're going to go hard left like they did with McGovern. And if that happens, they're going to destroy the Democratic Party. And they're on their way to it right now. Mm-hmm. Victor, you've got places to go and things to do. I surely appreciate your coming down here and talking to well, me. Well, thank today. you for having me. You've been listening to Area 45, a Hoover Institution podcast on the policy avenues available to the 45th President of the United States. If you've been enjoying Area 45, please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to us on iTunes. And while you're at it, do the same for Victor's podcast, The Classicist. You can find the Hoover Institution online at www.hoover.org. I encourage you to sign up for the Hoover Daily Report, which delivers the best work of Hoover Fellows. That certainly includes the work of Victor Davis Hanson straight to your inbox every business day. You can also find the Hoover Institution online at Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Our Twitter handle is at Hoover Instance, at Hoover I-N-S-T. Victor Davis Hansen is on Twitter, and his Twitter handle is at VD Hansen. That's H-A-N-S-O-N. And he has his own website, VictorHansen.com, his own personal papers. For the Hoover Institution, this is Bill Whalen. We'll be back soon with another installment of Area 45. Until then, take care. As always, thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution. For more podcasts from the Hoover Institution, please visit hoover.org or Hoover's channels on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Stitcher. I'm Chris Dower for the Hoover Institution. Thanks for listening.